This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, Team Cardio Nerds. Dan Amender here, and we are very excited to share this next Cardio Nerds Rounds recording. Cardio Nerds Rounds are virtual rounds with world experts where we learn the latest evidence through challenging cases. This incredible series is co-chaired by master educators Dr. Karin Desai from Johns Hopkins and Dr. Natalie Stokes from UPMC. In this episode, we're going to learn all about atrial fibrillation with Dr. Hugh Calkins from Johns Hopkins. So stay with us. Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education to continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is supported with unrestricted funding from Zoll LifeFest. A huge thank you to Mitzi Applegate and Yvonne Chivaret for their top-notch production skills that make Cardinerds Rounds such an amazing success. Of course, the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardinerds without external bias. Case details are altered to protect patient health information. And with that, let's round. Natalie, take it away. Welcome, everyone, to Cardio Nerds Round. The Cardio Nerds, supported by Zoll, are here to bring you a virtual rounding experience to learners throughout the country and even internationally as we delve into some patient cases with clinical experts to learn how they apply guidelines to some nuanced clinical cases. We have a great episode here for you today. So now we'll introduce our faculty guest and fellow guest. Thanks, Natalie. This is Karen, one of the cardiology fellows at the University of Maryland and also the editor-in-chief of the Cardio Nerds Academy. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Stephanie Fuentes, who is currently a cardiology fellow at Houston Methodist and a future EP star who is going to be introducing our faculty expert here today and presenting the majority of cases. So Stephanie, you want to take it away? Thank you, Karen. Let me introduce Dr. Cockings. He is the director of the Electrophysiology Laboratory and Arrhythmia Service at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. He's an international recognized expert on catheter ablation and atrial fibrillation, amongst many other areas of EP. Dr. Cockings has been on the editorial board of many cardiology journals. In 2012, he led a 44-member international task force whose 2012 expert consensus statement gave recommendations for treatment and research of atrial fibrillation. Dr. Calkins is a past president of the Heart Rhythm Society. He is a role model for all current and future electrophysiologists and a wonderful teacher, and we're so excited to have him here with us today. Great. Well, thank you, Stephanie, for the introduction. I'm delighted to be invited to participate and look forward to an interesting discussion. So let's go ahead and start. We will see two to three patients today. So the first case is a 60-year-old lady with a history of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation and hypertension who came in with palpitations to her clinic. She was initially diagnosed with atrial fibrillation three years prior to her establishing care with us. And the episodes were initially every few months, and then she subsequently developed them monthly. And the episodes were lasting up to 20 minutes. 
Her primary care physician ordered two separate Holter monitors, which did not show atrial fibrillation, but rather PACs. However, when she wore the monitor, she had no palpitations. Her primary care physician started her on metoprolol at 50 milligrams every 12 hours and a Pixaban for the suspicion of atrial fibrillation, though at that point there was no diagnosis of it. Her symptoms continued and it became unbearable. So she then saw a cardiologist and in the office an EKG was obtained. That EKG showed atrial fibrillation with a ventricular rate of close to 130. She had a complete right bundle branch block, but no significant ischemic changes. While in the office, she actually spontaneously converted to sinus rhythm. And importantly, whenever she was having the EKG done, she was having the same palpitations that she had at home and warranted the evaluation. Transthoracic echocardiogram showed a normal LV ejection fraction with normal wall thickness, a normal LA size and volume, and there was no significant babulopathy. The other medications that she was taking was a peak seven, and then, as we mentioned earlier, an amloepine. Her BMI was 27, and her blood pressure in the office was 125 over 70. She had no sleep apnea, and she had normal thyroid function studies done with her primary care doctor. So, she's seeking your opinion on how to manage her palpitations, and she's hesitant to start new meds, but will do so if you think it is best. What is your recommendation for this patient? Option one is to start outpatient amelorone load and then ameliorate maintenance. Option two is to continue beta blocker and consider optitration. Option three is admit for dofetilide or sotalol load. And the other option is recommend pilling the pocket with flecainide or propafenum. So I'll tell you what I would do and then we'll go through the other options. What I would do is I would present the patient with two treatment options. Either the patient could go on flecainide, 100 BID, or go straight to catheter ablation. Let's just run through the other options. So the amiodarone option is clearly a wrong choice. Amiodarone is a second-line antiarrhythmic. You never want to use it first line if you do, and if the patient develops pulmonary toxicity, you'll be in deep trouble. So that clearly is a bad idea. It's fine to use amiodarone first line in patients with cardiomyopathy and AFib, particularly if they have a rapid rate, but you never would want to use it first line. So the second option is continuing beta blocker and up the dose. Clearly, she's on an inadequate dose because her rate in AFib was awfully rapid. So it's certainly reasonable to up the dose of beta blocker, but I don't think that alone will control her AFib. Dofetilide or sotalol are not bad options. Dofetilide is always preferable to sotalol because patients hate sotalol. It makes patients feel just terrible. So the only situation where I'll use sotalol is if I'm starting as an outpatient and someone in sinus rhythm, usually a man where the risk of proarrhythmia is less. But if I'm admitting someone, I never would use that admission for sotalol. I'd always use it for dofetilide, which I think is very well tolerated. A very good drug, but I tend to not use it in women because their QT intervals are longer and they're more prone to proarrhythmia. Now, the pill-in-the-pocket approach, I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years. I probably used that approach twice in 30 years. It's basically a flawed approach. The only time pill-in-the-pocket should be considered is for patients with persistent AFib, where the AFib doesn't stop on its own, where you've shown that flecainide or propafenone can terminate the AFib. These are typically in someone who has say two episodes of AFib a year, each time they go into AFib, they have to be cardioverted. Rather than bring them in for cardioversion, you'd like to see if you can have them 
take flaconide or as an outpatient. But even in that situation where you're going to do it, the first time you do it, you have to give the flaconide or propafenone in a monitored situation. So I'll tell patients if they go back into AFib, here's your 300 of flaconide, take an extra toprol, take 300 of flaconide. And as you walk into the emergency room and tell them you just took 300 milligrams of flaconide, you need to be monitored for two hours. Because if you show up at the ER and try to explain this to them, they'll never figure it out. So in the rare situations where I use that approach, that's what I would do. And this lady, she was having too frequent episodes to even consider this approach. And the episodes were always self-terminating. So you're really not going to get much out of that approach. In terms of catheter ablation, that's the other good option for this patient. And I think we're all aware of the three prospective randomized trials published this year in the New England Journal of Medicine, looking at first-line ablation versus antiarrhythmic drug therapy, mainly with flaconide or propafenone. And this was with a cryobloon, and all three studies showed that the catheter ablation is more effective and the quality of life is better. And everything favored catheter ablation. The only thing that was different is with catheter ablation, the nature of complications is different than with meds. So with catheter ablation, rarely you'll have tamponade, rarely you'll have some vascular injury and so forth. The other thing which you have to remember is even if you decide to do a catheter ablation, anyone good at catheter ablation has about a two to three month waiting list. So while you're waiting to have catheter ablation done, there's very little downside to trying flecainide 100 BID, and you'll have a sense pretty quickly if it works, if it works perfectly and the patient tolerates it, and they're a little bit leery of having an invasive procedure, which most women are, it's very reasonable to leave them on flecainide you know, until it stops working, and then catheter ablation could be done in the future. I'll make one other comment that you need to be aware of, and that is that catheter ablation keeps getting better. So the success rates and complications now are far different than they were five years ago. And in three to five years, we'll have electroporation systems FDA approved. And these electroporation systems have been shown in preliminary data to be more effective, quicker, and safer than what we're doing now with the cryobloon or RF energy. So if you put a patient like this on flecainide, in two or three years when it stops working, you'll be able to do a procedure that will be better, safer, and quicker. So that's also worth keeping in mind. So let me go through the patient course and what we ended up doing. Because, as you said, the option of catheter ablation, and particularly because the patient did not want to pursue any options for the long term, she underwent catheter ablation. And we just saw her in clinic after three months since the ablation. And she has had no recurrence with the restroom AFib and importantly, no palpitations. You had two comments there. Currently, if you look at the guidelines, whether the, the consensus document or the ACCHA guidelines, it will give a class one recommendation to someone with paroxysmal AFib who's failed drugs and a class 2A to first-line ablation. So right now, this would be a 2A option, which is very acceptable. But once the new guidelines are written based on those three studies that have recently been published, first-line ablation will be equally and also a, a class one option. I think the other comment is, in my sense, you usually present with patients these two different options you come up with. And it's a very personal decision what patients decide. Some patients hate medications and they absolutely would go for the procedure. Other patients are deathly afraid of a procedure that has potential complication, would always choose medications. 
So you present the options, but patients usually can really tell you what their personality is and which way they tend to go with treatment. In this case, she already said she didn't like meds. So this was a very good approach to you. So well done. Dr. Calkins, this is Karen. A question that comes up frequently is from your perspective or from an electrophysiologist's perspective, are there certain patient demographics or patient factors that are going to point you towards thinking that a catheter ablation is not going to be successful? And does that lead you towards sometimes not offering it for certain patients? Well, I mean, in terms of what predicts success of ablation, type of AFib is important. So anyone with paroxysmal AFib is pretty much a good candidate for ablation. But the success rate for paroxysmal AFib ablation is 70 to 80% with one procedure. For persistent, it's sort of in the, we'll say, 50 to 70% range. And for longstanding persistent, if they've been in it for more than a year, then it's in the 30 to 50% range. So type of AFib is sort of the most important variable. And then there's patient variables. If someone's slender and generally healthy, they're basically a good candidate. But if someone rolls in and they weigh 500 pounds, that's not going to be a, a fun procedure. Radiation exposure will be higher. And, and all the data tells us that the chance of success will be less. So a patient like that, I'll usually say, let's choose medicines first, get on a diet, get 10% of the weight off, and let's try to put off ablation as long as we can. And I, I would definitely prefer to have a patient like that on Tikasin, you know, waiting, you know, losing some weight rather than rush in and do an ablation. The other issue is age. There's no real age cutoff for ablation. And more and more, we're doing catheter ablation in 80-year-olds. I don't know if I've ever exceeded 90, but I think I've done it on an 89-year-old. And all the studies show that the elderly patients generally get through these procedures well, providing they're a vigorous elderly patient. So physiologic health rather than age, but there's no age cutoff for patients. Sleep apnea is another variable. Anyhow, basically sicker patients have worse outcomes than healthier patients, but type of AFib is most important. We have a few questions here in the chat. One I'll bring up because you were just talking about age is that in terms of when you're thinking about the medication, specifically flecainide, propafenone, is there an age cutoff where you no longer consider using these medications? And how do you approach the patients who are a bit older? I think flecainide or propafenone, if someone has Certainly a normal looking EKG and a normal ejection fraction. As far as I'm concerned, flecainide or propafenone would be my first line drug in pretty much any patient like that. Now you could argue as they get older, they're more likely to have subclinical coronary disease and, and therefore should you do a stress test before starting them on these medications. That's not how I practice. I don't do screening stress tests before I put them on flecainide or propafenone. There's nothing in the guidelines that say that should be done. It's not wrong to do, but if you can bill for a stress test, I guess you can do it, but it's certainly not necessary. And subclinical coronary disease is not a contraindication. You may be aware that about a month ago, a study was just published, and I forget who published it, but they looked at some big, huge database and showed that patients with coronary disease did fine with flecainide and propafenone. So this fear we've had of using them may be ill-conceived or not real, and now it's being questioned. But as far as I'm concerned, if someone's had a bypass or they had a stent, I avoid flecainide and propafenone. For all other patients, I'll use them. The only other situation which is interesting, which is someone with tachybrady syndrome, where they have AFib and then they have pauses. 
And so in the old days, we would put a pacemaker in and put that patient on an antiarrhythmic drug like fleconide or propafenone. Nowadays, we know that catheter ablation actually treats sick sinus syndrome. There's been three studies out of, I think many of them were from Japan, where you took patients where you otherwise would have put a pacemaker in, you do an ablation and you eliminate the AFib, eliminate the pauses, increase the heart rate and avoid the pacemaker. And, and one of the things that's well known is when you do catheter ablation, the heart rate will increase resting heart rate by 10 to 20 beats per minute the morning after the procedure because of changes in the autonomic tone. And that's a marker of success. So when you see someone with ablation, they come in with a heart rate of 40, the next morning at 70, it's not because they have tamponade, it's because you've done a good job and you've altered some of the autonomic ganglia. That's a good sign, but that's the same mechanism by which you can treat tachybrady syndrome with a AFib ablation. Thanks, Dr. Calkins, for all those pearls. I think Stephanie has some more patients for us to see, and we want to continue getting these pearls from you while we have you for rounds. So why don't we hear the next case, Stephanie? So Mr. A is our next patient. He is a 64-year-old gentleman with coronary disease and prior cabbage, a most recent multivessel PCI. He has ischemic cardiomyopathy, biopersonic aortic valve, and a left bundle branch block with a QRS of 172 that has been uh, present for many years. He's coming in to you with persistent atrial fibrillation and dyspnea exertion. So after an enstemy in 2011, he had cabbage. He had Lima to LAD, SVG to RCA, and SVG to DIAC. And at that time, he also underwent a bioprosthetic aortic valve replacement. He did well until this past summer when he had an open cholecystectomy. And then subsequently, like two weeks after that, he developed a worsening dyspnea and exertion and fatigue. So he saw his primary cardiologist. And during that evaluation, he was found to be in atrial fibrillation with the heart rate in the 90s. And importantly, his ejection fraction had dropped from 45% last year to now 20 to 25%. He had a bad stress, which showed a 10% ischemic myocardium. So he underwent a PCI to a left main into CERC and RCA. So then 1.5 months later, he continued to feel dyspnea with minimal activity. He also had orthopnea and bethopnea. So he was referred to an EP clinic for AFib management. In the office, he remains in atrial fibrillation. He doesn't necessarily feel palpitations, but his primary symptom is dyspnea, despite recent revascularization. And the dyspnea is significant that he's not able to work and so has clearly affected his daily functionality. His heart rate log shows that his heart rate has been mainly in the 80s with intermittent respect to 100. His home medications include a Bixavan, 5 milligrams twice a day, metoprolol succinate, 100 milligrams, and Tresto, 49 to 51 milligrams twice a day, spironolactone, 25 once a day, and empagosin 10 milligrams once a day. So on appropriate goal-directed medical therapy. On exam, he appears euvolemic. His oxygenation is 97% on room air and 93% with ambulation. Blood pressure in the office 115 over 60. And the EKG obtaining clinic showed a fantastically wide left bundle with a QRS duration of close to 190. And he's in AFib, but no other significant changes compared to his prior EKG. He's had an echocardiogram done right after the visit to evaluate the juncture fraction after revascularization. It remained 20 to 25%. He had an akinetic and thin inferior wall with a moderately dilated left atrium. He had normal gradients and velocity across his uh, prosthetic aortic valve, and he had a moderately elevated PSD. During the echo, he remains in AFib. So the question is, how would you advise this patient be managed as a first next step? 
would we recommend amiodarone in maintenance? Uh, would you recommend cardioversion followed by amiodarone, cardioversion followed by sotalol, catheter ablation, or an AV normal ablation and a CRTV? Dr. Calkins, how would you approach this patient? Well, I think you have two good choices for managing this patient. So I would put the patient on amiodarone 200 BID and arrange for a cardioversion in a month and hope that gets them back to sinus rhythm and keeps them there and that that will result in an improvement in the ZF. So he doesn't need a defibrillator implantation. I think amiodarone is the only safe antiarrhythmic drug you can use in this setting. Catheter ablation would be another option, but to rush in and do catheter ablation without trying amiodarone first and someone like this, I don't think is a very good plan. The other equally good option would be to put in a CRTD and ablate the AV node, but I'm impressed by the fact that his EF was 40, 45% before he went into AFib, then it dropped to 20%. So it really was AFib that pushed him over. So I would try to address the AFib and hope that that gets his EFs up so you don't have to put hardware in him. He's a pretty young patient for putting defibrillators and IV devices in at 65. I try to reserve that for more 75, 80-year-old patients. I'll share one other thing before I turn it back to you. So I saw a patient in clinic this week who's a 60-year-old guy who three years ago had developed persistent AFib and his cardiologist cardioverted him and it came back and he tried Multac and came back and he concluded he was asymptomatic. He's just going to let him be. So the patient comes to see me three years later and now I get an echo. His EF is 35%. He has severe biatrial dilation and, and mitral regurgitation. And it just sort of speaks to this link between AFib and heart failure. And it's not just about rate. Even if you have rate-controlled AFib, AFib can lead to heart failure. Not in everyone, but it's sort of unpredictable. It's one of the many reasons I always think life is better in sinus rhythm. So I think first step is amiodarone. If someone's an inpatient, you can give up to 600 three times a day for one to two weeks. But as an outpatient, I usually use 200 BID for a month and then drop it to 200 a day. I never leave someone on 400 a day longer than a month, but that's sort of been the loading regimen I've used for the last couple of decades. How long would you continue that patient on amiodarone after cardioversion? So assuming he gets back to sinus rhythm, I drop the amiodarone down to 200. And then I'd present him with three options of staying on amiodarone, and just lowering the dose over time, probably six months at 200 a day, and then at six months, dropping them to 200 three or four times a week. And that would be one strategy. The other strategy would be now that you have him back in sinus rhythm, his EF's gotten better. If he doesn't want to be on amiodarone long-term, which he probably doesn't because he's 65, then plan to do a catheter ablation a month after you get him back to sinus rhythm. And if you think about catheter ablation, one of the most severe complications is a stroke. And one of the risk factors for stroke is what rhythm do you roll into the EP lab in it? If you show up in sinus rhythm, your stroke risk is less than if you show up in AFib. So I always like patients to show up in sinus rhythm if possible. So I'd present the option of amiodarone, cardioversion, and schedule an ablation a month later with plans to stop amiodarone a month after the ablation so he's still in sinus rhythm. Dr. Calkins, one of the questions that popped up was, does the presence of a left bundle favor AV node ablation plus uh, CRT over amio? It's certainly something that I think makes the AV node ablation and CRTD you know, it was sort of a reasonable alternative, but the guys had the left bundle prior to the AFib. What dropped his EF from 40 to 20% was the AFib. And devices are great, but 
putting devices in 60-year-old people, and you look at lead fractures, lead infections, or urosepsis or whatever, you know, I, I think life is better without hardware personally. So I think there's very little to lose with trying the amiodarone and cardioversion. If that doesn't work, and if it can't even stay in sinus rhythm for a day, then you're going to have the option of doing ablation in AFib, knowing he's refractured amiodarone, which will sort of tell you the chance of success of ablation is less. Or going to CRTD, which is sort of a one and done kind of a deal. And I would present those two options to the patient. And like with the first patient, patients have strong feelings. Some patients hate the idea of a pacemaker or defibrillator. Other patients, it seems like they're very comfortable with it. So you as the clinician, you always want to be able to say, if they look at you and say, well, doctor, what would you do? You need to know what your answer is going to be. But I think I, I present patients generally with two different approaches and get their input, but I'm always ready to tell them what I think I would do. But what I would do if it was me was amiodarone cardioversion, try to avoid the device. And I, the other question you could wonder, well, because he has a left bundle, is the risk of heart block with amiodarone so high that that would be a bad choice? And the answer to that is no. The rate of, you know, the, I can't remember any patients I put on amiodarone who have a left bundle that that caused trigger complete heart block, almost unheard of. Dr. Calkins, I think a couple other questions uh, popped up here. And one of them is related to thinking about in what patient populations were reduced LVEF, would you consider catheter ablation as your first line therapy? Oh, it's very common. Certainly someone with new onset AFib and heart failure at the same time. 95% of the time, it's going to be AFib that triggered the cardiomyopathy. And if you get rid of the AFib, the patient's going to get better. So anyone with that profile, I very aggressively will pursue sinus rhythm. Now, the, the alternative is someone who has a known cardiomyopathy, has been in sinus rhythm with an EF of 15% for years, and then they develop AFib. And then they say, well, should this patient get an ablation? Well, you know, the cardiomyopathy predated the AFib. So I'd be a little more reluctant in that patient. There's also data, if you look at the size of the ventricle and how much fibrosis there is, if someone has a massively dilated left ventricle, that's not the kind of heart failure that's going to get it dramatically better with getting a patient to sinus rhythm. So the answer is the temporal relationship, how fast the AFib is when the AFib shows up, what your suspicion is that this is an AFib-induced cardiomyopathy. I mean, in the Castle AF study, which you're all familiar with, which is the study that showed catheter ablation is severe to medical management, that was very, very selected patients. The number of patients in the study was very small. The number of patients with heart failure and AFib is massive. So those were cherry-picked patients. Thanks, Dr. Calkins, for breaking that down. Let me make one other comment. The Sotolol option in the last question obviously would have been a terrible option I mean, someone with a cardiomyopathy has a prolonged QT interval by definition, and to use Sotolol in someone like that would have been completely crazy. So I hope no one chose that as an option. Stephanie, you want to let us know what happened with this patient? So the discussion that you had, Dr. Confit, was essentially what we discussed extensively with this patient. So we pursued cardioversion and we tried amiodarone after, and I guess we, we didn't load the patient before, but he developed a rash with amiodarone so that we had to discontinue uh, amiodarone after that. He symptomatically did much better when he was in sinus rhythm in that the dyspnea and orthopnea resolved. He actually wanted to go back to work. But his ejection fracture remained in the 25 to 30% a month after that. So because of the left bundle and the EF not 
necessarily recovering, he had a CRTD placed. We opted for a conduction system basing, given the left bundle and his QRS narrowed to 103 uh, milliseconds. And he then, unsurprised, went back into AFib. And so we discussed options uh, with regards to the fetilite versus ablation. And he is now a plan to undergo ablation in the coming months. Great. Good case. Dr. Cochran, just one question to follow up on that. Once you're restored to sinus rhythm, at what point in time do you think you've given it due process to allow the ejection fracture to recover? When would you do follow-up imaging before placing a defibrillator in this patient? Oh, I'd say a month. You'd see recovery within a month. I mean, I think less than a month's not enough, but I'd say 30 or more days is fine. Great. Thank you. Stephanie, why don't you take us to our final patient? So she is an 85-year-old lady with a history of hypertension and recent COVID-19 pneumonia, which was complicated by AFib with RVR, and she's now admitted to the hospital with recurrent AFib with RVR. So she was admitted in June of uh, this year with COVID-19 pneumonia. During the hospital stay, she developed AFib with a ventricular rate of 140. She was managed with diltiazem with spontaneous conversion to sinus prior to discharge. So she was sent home on Xarelto for CVA prevention, metoprolol, and atorvastatin. She was readmitted two months later to medicine service with dyspnea, relative hypotension in that her blood pressures at home were now leaning towards 100 over 70 compared to her baseline of 130s over 90s on medications. So in the emergency room, she was found to be in AFib with RVR with a ventricular rate of close to 145. She has an incomplete right bundle, but in some non-specific T-wave changes in the um, anterolateral leads. She had an echocardiogram that showed an ejection fraction of 20 to 25%, which was a new drop compared to a prior echocardiogram during the time of the COVID admission. The LV was mildly dilated. She had mildly reduced her systolic function and she had no hemodynamically significant babylopathy. So she was diuresed and she had a T cardioversion and she was placed on a myelorone. But she went back into AFib the following day. And because the ventricular rates were quite fat, she was given digoxin, but she remained in rapid AFib and she started developing more shortness of breath and pulmonary edema. Her BMI was 25. Her oxygenation is 96% on two liters, which was improving compared to whenever she came into the emergency room, which was like five liters or so. Her heart was in the 130s. Her blood pressure was 90 over 65. And we were reconsulted for management recommendations. And thank you, Stephanie, for presenting that case. Dr. Calkins, how would you approach this patient? Interesting patient. She was obviously cardioverted after giving amiodarone, but it takes amiodarone, it takes a while to take effect. My own thought would be to keep the patient on high-dose amiodarone and cardiovert the patient two, three days later. I mean, amiodarone is a very good rate control agent. It's also the best rhythm control agent. And so I would really try to work to get her loaded with amiodarone and, and if needed, try cardioversion in two more days or five more days or seven or you know, repeatedly basically and try to make that work. I think the dofedolite option is not a bad one, given that it has a shorter half-life and you're going to see effects pretty quickly. On the other hand, she's a woman, her QT looks long, she has a lousy EF. So it seems a little bit daunting to me to plan on dofedolite because of the quick half-life, but I don't think that would be a wrong idea. Avionode ablation and a pacemaker, I think, is certainly a very reasonable option given her age and her hypotension and the other comorbidities. 
certainly I wouldn't take a patient like this and do an emergency catheter ablation. I've never done an emergency catheter ablation in my life. I think that'd be crazy to take someone like this and do a catheter ablation. And, you know, a beta blocker, she's already hypotensive. I don't think that's going to be the way to go. I'd rather use amiodarone for rate control and, and hope that's going to do it. I think it's not an uncommon case, Dr. Calkins, that we've been seeing not only recently, commonly on service. Stephanie, why don't you let us know what happened? Sure. So she was continued to be loaded on amiodarone. She continued to receive the drugs and particular rates didn't really particularly improve. And her blood pressure was a main limiting factor for any other agent. So she underwent a binaural ablation and a CRTP with conduction system pacing. Yeah, I think that's a very reasonable option, particularly if more amiodarone and other cardioversion failed. Good choice. One of the questions I have is, and we see it frequently, when using amiodarone and digoxin together, do you make any dose changes? How frequently do you monitor EKGs? How do you use these medications together, especially if you're using it for ventricular rate control? Well, the first is that amiodarone is really discouraged these days. In the old days, we used it commonly and would push the dose or whatever. Now we know that it mainly works by increasing vagal tone. And anyone that's really sick, vagal tone is low, so it's not going to do much of anything. So the only patient where you'd use it is someone like this, heart failure with some hypotension where you can't use other agents. In general, if they're on amiodarone, I drop the dose in half. So someone like this, I'd put them on you know, 0.125 a day and wouldn't go over that. But you know, in a given year, if I see a thousand patients with AFib in clinic, I'll probably use digoxin in maybe one, or maybe it's one every other year. I mean, it's unbelievably uncommon to use digoxin these days for rate control of AFib. Thanks, Dr. Calkins. One question comes from uh, Manoj for Charlotte, University of Maryland. So he's asking, what range of ejection fraction in patients would be appropriate to consider dofetilide? Oh, dofetilide has no cutoff in ejection fraction. There's been clinical trials in heart failure patients with a reduced ejection fraction. If you look at the ACCAHA guidelines, in someone with heart failure, two options are dofetilide or amiodarone. You know, assuming you you have to start all these patients as an inpatient. You got to get EKGs after every dose. You got to follow the recommendations in terms of dosing. But I'm very comfortable using it in any you know, ejection fraction. Right, I'll make one other comment about Tinkasin. I mean, it's remarkable how effective it is and how often you get pharmacologic cardioversion. Amiodarone almost never will pharmacologically convert a patient. Whereas with Tinkasin, it's probably you know, at least 30% of the time after one or two doses, someone who's been in AFib for a year will flip into sinus rhythm. It's sort of striking to see it work. I think it's a uniquely well-tolerated and effective medication with a pain point being a three-day admission to get placed on it. Thanks, Dr. Calkins. I think we have another question from one of the attendees asking, do you consider stroke risk when starting people on amiodarone who have not been systemically anticoagulated? Do you consider this equally as risky as an electrical cardioversion? That's something I think we see and talk about frequently. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. No, that's a very good point. Theoretically, certainly with Tikasin, very commonly you get pharmacologic cardioversion. So if someone's being admitted for Tikasin, they haven't been anticoagulated for three weeks, you'll definitely do a TE before they get the first dose. And amiodarone, you can see pharmacologic cardioversion. It's much less common. But it's basically the same principle. Either they need to have been anticoagulated for three weeks or you need to do a T before you start amiodarone up, unless it's a life-threatening critical issue where they're hypotensive in the emergency room where you do what you have to do. I saw a patient in clinic yesterday where the guy is a lousy EF. I want him to go on amiodarone. He hasn't been anticoagulated. 
what I did with him is to say, well, after two weeks, we're going to start anticoagulation first. And instead of waiting three full weeks, I said, after two weeks, I'm going to start amiodarone up for 200 BID and then cardiovert four weeks after amiodarone gets started, just so we're moving along. I mean, that's cutting a little bit of a corner, but I feel that's comfortable. But you wouldn't start amiodarone without doing a TE or having them anticoagulated for three weeks before. Thank you. Um, another question from the audience is that, looping back to several of the cases we discussed today, is what do you define as structural heart disease in terms of triaging what medications you feel comfortable using in patients, such as flecainide and those of similar class? Do you consider LVH or mild to moderate valvular regurgitation okay in terms of structural heart disease? You'll note that in the guidelines, that's not defined what structural heart disease is. So it's very much in the eye of the beholder. I mean, in my own senses, I call structural heart disease. If you have severe hypertrophy, a wall thickness of one and a half, two centimeters or whatever sort of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy range, I'd, I'd say that would be a patient I wouldn't use flecainide or propafenone is, but it has the same with sotalol. I would tend to avoid it. An EF of 40% or less or a wall thickness of 1.4, it has to be pretty extreme for me to consider it quote unquote structural disease and you can't use these drugs. The other thing which changed in the recent guidelines, in the old days when you looked at drug selection, they looked at structural heart disease, heart failure, coronary disease, and then hypertrophy. And then they said, if there's hypertrophy, use these drugs. If there's no hypertrophy, use these drugs. When we looked at all the data, that's really based on nothing. So we threw that out. It's one of the changes in the 2014 and 2019 guidelines that hypertrophy is no longer part of the decision tree because it really doesn't inform what you should use. But if someone has severe hypertrophy, that would push me away from antiarrhythmic drugs, more amiodarone, or probably Tegacin in that setting. Thank you so much for pointing that out. That's an important point. I have one final question for you. You spoke today a little bit about how you triage and think about a normal sinus rhythm versus rate control. And I was wondering if you could just give a little insight into how you counsel your patients on this and how you use the literature to guide that discussion. When I talk to my patients about AFib, I first talk about stroke risk and anticoagulation. That's obviously most important. Then we talk about symptoms and how most decisions are based on symptoms. So if someone's asymptomatic, it's harder to justify intervening and getting a patient back to sinus rhythm. But then I talk about the other downsides of AFib, which are dementia, heart failure, shorter life, increased risk of sudden death, and increased risk of stroke if you're in AFib versus you're an AFib patient with sinus rhythm. So I call these the proven benefits of sinus rhythm, which is feeling better. And then there's the theoretical benefits of sinus rhythm, which are preventing dementia, heart failure, living longer, preventing sudden death, and lowering your stroke risk. And then we also talk about the issue that the longer you're in AFib, the harder it is to get you back to sinus rhythm. So I saw a patient in clinic yesterday, 79-year-old, pretty vigorous guy, AFib for about six months, really no symptoms, rate-controlled and a beta blocker has failed the cardioversion. What do we do? And we had this discussion, certainly at the standard of care or the old way of thinking is just leave the patient sinus rhythm. You've done one cardioversion, it didn't hold, and just follow them along clinically with echoes every other year and make sure their resting heart rate's less than 80. And then there's the forward thinking approach, which is our best chance of getting you back to normal rhythm is now. Catheter ablation is getting better every year with electroporation coming. 
if we don't get you back to normal rhythm now in two years when some of these new better approaches are available, you won't be a candidate. So we ended up in that patient deciding that we're going to give Ticacin a try. So we're going to admit him, put him on Ticacin, cardiovertum, reassess, does he really feel better in sinus rhythm or not, or notice no difference once he's back in normal rhythm for a week or two or three and, and see how things play out. I think if we cardiovert him on Tikistan and he goes right back to AFib, we could then do an ablation, but that's getting a little more aggressive than I think many people would feel comfortable doing. On the other hand, if he gets to stay in sinus rhythm, I'm happy to leave Montecasin waiting for the studies to come out that show catheter ablation improves the cognitive function and so forth. We're all aware of the EAST study showing that early treatment of AFib of sinus rhythm makes a difference with a lower stroke, heart attack, death, important heart endpoints. And even though the Cabana study came up a little bit short, I know if it was me, I'd want to stay in sinus rhythm rather than be in AFib and then do nothing about it. Then three years later, regret that I wish I had tried. And I tell patients, is it better to have loved and lost than have never loved at all? If you try Ticacin and it doesn't work, are you going to regret those three days in the hospital and have some great remorse? The answer is no. But if that keeps you in sinus rhythm so that two years from now when studies come out showing this staves off dementia, you can get an electroporation ablation, I think that's a very good strategy. So I really prefer sinus rhythm. And all the data says you got to treat early to get the best results. If you wait till someone's been in AFib continuously for three years or more, it's going to be hard no matter what you do. One other comment which was asked was what defines a good and bad candidate for ablation or whatever. One thing I didn't mention, which I meant to, was left atrial size. If the left atrium is small, less than four, four and a half, that's really good news. But if the left atrium is five and a half, six, seven, eight centimeters, that tells you there's a lot of fibrosis, a lot of scar, and you're going to have a tough go trying to keep that patient in sinus rhythm. And when we do afib ablation, we always get CT scans or MRI scans, and you just look at the chamber. And if it looks like a grapefruit, you know, it's not going to work. You're going to end up back in AFib. But if it looks like a plum, you know, if it's small, basically your chance of success is dramatically improved going forward. Dr. Hawkins, that was wonderful. I think now going forward, I'm going to do the plum versus grapefruit comparison on the CT scans. <laughs> yeah. So this truly felt like we had a chance to round with you this past hour. And I know Dr. Hawkins, you have some cases to get to. So I really just want to thank Dr. Stephanie Fuentes for putting these cases together and Dr. Calkins for sharing your expertise. This really was a wonderful session and we really hope that all of you uh, join us again next time. Thank you all. Great. Well, thanks for the uh, invitation I had to meet with all of you and stay well and enjoy your AFib patients.